Welcome to the Cato Institute, everybody. Um, I'm Emma Ashford. I'm a research fellow in defense and foreign policy here at Cato. Um, I'm really glad you could join us tonight for our joint event with the Bridging the Gap initiative. Um, I know that many of you in the audience are probably familiar with the program already um, or have even gone through some of the, the classes that it offers. But for those who don't know, Bridging the Gap is a program that attempts to encourage academics and scholars of international relations to try and engage with the policy world. Um, for those of us at Cato, we're often outnumbered in the policy debates here in DC. And so the substantially greater variety of opinions found in the academic world on international relations gives us some hope that perhaps we can have a broader discussion about US foreign policy. So we're very pleased to be hosting this discussion. Um, tonight, we're going to talk about the Trump administration's foreign policy. Trump's campaign was, I think, notable in many ways. We won't soon forget it. Um, but one of the ways in which it was notable was that he didn't seek advisors from the traditional DC foreign policy establishment in the same way that most candidates for high office do. Um, and in fact, Trump often advocated policies that are very much at odds with what we might call the foreign policy consensus here in DC. So his administration seems to offer a fairly unique opportunity for outside voices, that is people that are not normally part of the DC policy conversation, to influence foreign policy. And we've already seen him do this from the business world, drawing in people like Secretary of State Rex Tillerson, from ex-military circles like the Secretary of Defense and other offices. Um, and international relations scholars might offer another pool of untapped expertise for Trump to draw upon. So let me start by very quickly introducing our panel, um, and then we'll quickly get to this discussion. Um, start with Stephen Weber, who's a political science professor at UC Berkeley. Um, his research focuses on political economy, technology markets, and international politics. He's worked at the European Bank for Reconstruction and Development and has held fellowships at the Council on Foreign Relations. Um, also worth noting, he's really probably the only real doctor on the panel, having gone to medical school before he got his PhD. <laughs> um, but more relevant for this event, he's one of the directors of Bridging the Gap. Um, we've got Mira Rapp-Hooper, who's a senior fellow at Center for New American Security, was formerly a fellow at CSIS and a number of other think tanks around town. Her research focuses on Asian security issues, nuclear strategy, and alliance politics, and she holds a PhD from Columbia University. She was also the Asia policy coordinator for the Clinton campaign last year. Um, Samir Lawani. Um, who is the deputy director of the South Asia program at the Stimson Center and has also been associated with a wide variety of policy institutions here in DC, including work at RAND and the New America Foundation. Um, despite that, he also holds an academic background, a PhD in political science from MIT, um, and his work has been published by Oxford University Press. Matt Kranick, uh, to my left here, has one foot in the academic world, one in the policy world. He is a professor at Georgetown University and also a senior fellow at the Atlantic Council. Um, he's the author of a number of books, including the forthcoming Logic of American Nuclear Strategy. Um, he has also worked as an advisor on both the Marco Rubio and Mitt Romney presidential campaigns. 
Um, and last but certainly not least, Ryan Evans, um, who sent me his own humorous bio, so I'm just going to read his words. Um, he's the founder, CEO, and editor-in-chief of War on the Rocks, an alcohol-inspired digital outlet on strategy, mm -hmm. defense, and foreign affairs. Ryan has a master's degree from King's College London, and unlike the rest of this panel, had the good sense to postpone getting his PhD to do something a little more practical. That's a very generous way of putting what actually happened. <laughs> He's also had a lot of interesting experiences in his career, including serving with the Army's Human Terrain System program, uh, working at a variety of think tanks, um, and is perhaps best known around DC for his affinity for certain forms of liquor. Um, if you want to talk to him later about that at the bar, that would be welcome. <laughs> so as you can see, um, I wanted to go through everyone's bio because all of the people on this panel um, have successfully crossed that boundary between academia and the policy world. And that's something that's increasingly rare as academia becomes less and less focused on real world policy influence. And so what I'd like to start out by asking the panelists is if you could just talk for a couple of minutes about your own experiences with bringing academic insights into the policy world. What did you find valuable? What wasn't particularly useful? Um, why don't we just start at this end? Uh, okay, I'll just say uh, two quick things. Um, my, my preferred term uh, of art for this conversation is actually more uh, decision maker than policy maker. Um, my experience coming out of um, the academic world was that uh, I had very, very little insight into how people actually make decisions. And that um, my mistake was to think that uh, the idea of putting interesting ideas before people would actually empower them to make better decisions. Um, I discovered mainly through work um, as a commercial advisor before I did much policy work uh, that that actually was not, in fact, helpful. That decision makers are people who have to make decisions. And that that was not something that most academics were trained to actually speak to. Um, once I discovered that sort of really simple insight and a couple other really simple insights that were essentially, use a, 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 almost a, a, a trivial phrase, customer focused. In other words, thinking about the decision maker as the person whose interests you're trying to serve, um, it actually became much, much easier to structure arguments for people in ways that they could use. And I think I learned one trick on that, which I'll just uh, mention and then stop. Um, there are three questions that I've sort of boiled down for myself that I think every decision maker is asking when he or she is faced with a tough decision um, and has a set of or limited set of options before him or her. Can it work? Will it work? And is it worth it? And I think that um, the challenge for academics, regardless of the administration, regardless of the politics of the situation, is to move from um, arguments where we are actually very comfortable saying, here's something that could work, to an argument that says, here's why it will work in this particular instance as compared to in cases like this. And then ultimately, where we have not really gone, I think, effectively as academics, and I would like to see us go more um, fully is the question of, is it worth it to the person who has to make the decision? That's where I think the biggest and most valuable advice can sometimes be generated. 
So um, I'd love to answer this question by sort of challenging the notion of what we think it means to be policy relevant as academics. I think um, as certainly a PhD student coming up through terrific programs like Bridging the Gap, uh, we often thought to ourselves that there was sort of a task before us to figure out a conveyor belt into the policymaking world that would allow our ideas to be incredibly influential. That effectively we would write a single article um, or a single book and that those ideas would be transmitted to policymakers and would be brought into being somehow um, in the policy world. The reality, I think, is much more complex than that, um, but it's very important to understand if you are someone with an academic background hoping to work in the policy world um, in some way, shape, or form. Uh, I think now, being at a think tank, the, the reality that I've experienced uh, alongside many of my colleagues is that being a policy-relevant academic often comes at the margins of a process, and the best way that you can allow your ideas to be important and have some policy relevance is to work with policymakers as they do their jobs uh, and try to move forward the policy process. So what do I mean by that? <coughs> Uh, I mean developing your expertise for its own sake and then using that expertise to be helpful to whatever part of the policy process may be able to use you. That can be uh, giving congressional testimony and thereby forming relationships with uh, congresspeople and congressional staffers who you can go back to brief later. That can be setting up working level meetings with uh, officials working at, let's say, the DAS or DASD level. Uh, that can basically be making inroads into a given administration or a given set of policymakers and being a sounding board for their ideas and helping them to refine whatever issue it is that they might be working on that is in your area of expertise as they do it, rather than assuming that a single sort of fully formed idea that you have uh, is going to be a light bulb that gets set off in the policymaking community that they somehow didn't think of before. And the reason that I think it's important to understand this broad process and how it works is because it's a, it's a community that's actually teeming with expertise in and of itself. Um, it's not the case that the policymaking community is waiting for academics to come up with decent ideas because they don't have any. In fact, they are very much beholden to bureaucratic and policy processes, but they have extraordinary expertise of their own. So I think one of the ways that academics can be most useful in a policy process is indeed to be a sounding board to help policymakers reframe their problems, bring a little bit of new expertise or ways of thinking about things uh, to what is already a very well built out uh, way that our government operates um, and is deeply staffed with experts. I'll also note that on top of that, I think there are a few key moments in the policymaking process and in the political cycle where the process becomes more open uh, for more influence by academics and other outsiders. Uh, one of those is during presidential campaigns, where uh, campaigns staff up uh, with experts uh, who may include academics. And those are opportunities to have your ideas really be heard in the form of strategy papers that might actually turn into policy. And another is in the early days of a new administration, uh, when a new administration is looking for big ideas or ways to reshape its approach to a problem. So I'm glad we're having this conversation today. Great. Uh, like a good academic, I uh, prepared for the totally the, uh, the wrong question. So I'm sort of coming up with this on the fly. I'd like to reframe the question, but no, I'll try to. I'll try to so I think there's some, some values that I'll just reflect on my own experience, but that what I think I'm bringing to the policy community, and I can't be honest about it because you know, I have self-interest in saying that I add value, but I'm not 100% confident of that. But what I think has worked for me uh, in, in, in my experiences thus far in, in DC the last few years uh, so there's sort of certain skill sets that I think academics bring to the, the process. One is some sense of empirical rigor. Uh, I think there's a lot of arguments and a lot of expertise that harnesses anecdotal evidence to make a point. Uh, 
but oftentimes it's not particularly rigorous and doesn't really stand up to close scrutiny. And I think that uh, we are, as academics, trained in some ways to sort of really uh, employ rigorous methods. And I'm not just talking about sort of, you know, large end or cutting edge uh, methodologies. I'm talking about just close case studies, uh, sort of very focused case studies to understand particular mechanisms and processes uh, that oftentimes get short shrift in, in the policymaking sort of analytical community. Um, but that I do think that there are other methods that we are learning in the academic environment that actually have real policy world application. Uh, I've just found this to be useful over the last uh, you know, couple of years that there are certain things, we talk about public opinion um, as constraints, for example, on leaders and whether that sort of affects credibility. Well, you know, there's a lot of tools that we have that are disposable that have just not been employed at all in, from what I can understand in, in sort of the think tank world, uh, doing large like survey experiments to understand what sort of pressures are applied on leaders, particularly during crises. Uh, it seems to me that that's like a ripe opportunity and I've managed to convince people that uh, there's an opportunity for this. But uh, I, I, I think that there's, an, there's a space there that has not yet been explored by a lot of the analytical community in DC. Um, in terms of expertise, I think Mira's right that there's a lot of experts here in DC. Uh, but there are certain areas that maybe are, uh, again, maybe lacking. Um, having thick knowledge in a particular regional sort of area focus, I think actually that's been discounted to some degree in the academic community um, over the last, I don't know how many years. Uh, but it seems to be rewarded and, and valued heavily in DC. So for those who sort of make it through the academic gauntlet and then have that thick knowledge, it can be immensely useful um, for policymakers. Uh, I like Steve's point about you know, thinking about this question of is it worth it? Uh, and I think that's something that also I, I find that is sometimes missing and where we can add value, and that is sort of trying to address trade-offs. Because I think a lot of people are thinking about efficacy, uh, but not a lot of people are thinking about sort of what the second order effects are or the third order effects uh, and how that then weighs in sort of with the ultimate policy decision. Uh, and I found that to be something that if you can bring that into the discussion, people value you for it. Um, and the last, I think, again, Sorry, I'm just stealing other people's ideas and repackaging them, or maybe just saying them again. Well, that's uh, okay, so there we go. Uh, you know, sometimes public forums and public writing is, is thought to be, there's a premium on this is the way in which to communicate your ideas. But there's another way to do it, which is to infiltrate the process or infiltrate the, bulb, the blob uh, and persuade people behind closed doors about certain ideas and let them be the advocates of it, let them be the champions and sort of the, idea, the people who actually spawn those ideas. Uh, because I think there's a lot of demand for insights, uh, but it's not about necessarily, you know, if you're willing to sort of seed credit for it, um, I think you have an opportunity to sort of shape, shape ideas behind closed doors. Great. Well, first, let me uh, say thanks for uh, hosting this event. Thanks to Cato. It's great to be here with a lot of old friends and colleagues discussing this important issue. Uh, I think I'd like to begin by um, maybe just challenging the introduction you started with a little bit because, you know, the Trump administration, I think, is unusual. Uh, in some ways, he's the first president we've had who hasn't had uh, previous political or military experience. Uh, on the other hand, I, th I think in many ways the administration is shaping up uh, to be much more conventional than many people would have expected in terms of appointments, in terms of some of the policies. And so I would argue that the, I think the way to influence the Trump administration is similar to ways you would uh, influence other administrations in, in history. Uh, and so I'll transition to plugging an article I wrote with a colleague, Dan Byman, at Georgetown in security studies last year called uh, Reaching Beyond the Ivory Tower, a how-to manual, uh, where we, we talk about how academics can design 
academic research that will be relevant to policymakers, and then how to inject that into the process. Uh, and so one of the things that we, we say there is that you know, academics, I think, a lot of times like writing on kind of grand uh, theory, issues of war and peace, grand strategy. Uh, and those are interesting and important subjects, but they're often not very policy relevant. Uh, you know, you have people all day, every day in government working on China, working on nuclear proliferation, working on counterterrorism, working on South Asia. Uh, you don't have many people working on war and peace or, or grand strategy. Uh, and so we argue one way to be relevant is to focus research on things that are, are relevant to policymakers. And we say as a rule of thumb, one thing you can do is, you know, think about your dependent variable of the issue you're studying and ask, is there an office in the U.S. government, uh, at the State Department, in the Defense Department, at the White House, with that dependent variable in the title? You know, is it Asia or nonproliferation? Uh, you know, if so, there's going to be a ready-made audience for your ideas. Uh, if not, uh, you risk um, kind of being irrelevant from the beginning. Uh, we also say that you need to have independent variables that are, that are relevant. You know, policymakers are looking to push and pull outcomes in a certain direction. So again, uh, academics, I think, sometimes are in interested in these big structural factors. How does the international balance of power affect things? How do patterns of colonial settlement 500 years ago affect uh, levels of economic development today? Again, interesting, important questions, but policymakers can't go back 500 years and change patterns of colonial settlement, uh, but they can change you know, the size of the US nuclear arsenal, sanctions, uh, and other things. So I think focusing also on independent variables that policymakers can adjust uh, is one way to be policy relevant. And then the second part of the article, we talked about ways to inject your ideas into the process. And so I think uh, Mira already uh, spoke to this um, very well, uh, some of the ideas we also put forward in the article. Uh, but one thing I would just uh, reinforce is, is timing. You know, timing is everything. Because once the administration gets in, once it finishes policy reviews, once it uh, sets off on a certain path, uh, then those policy decisions are going to be locked in. It's going to be very difficult to reverse course. Uh, so if you try to influence the process two years from now or three years from now, it's probably going to be too late. Uh, right now, as these policy reviews are uh, taking place, is really the time, I think, uh, where the possibilities are, are wide open and the uh, influence of outside ideas uh, is likely to be uh, most likely to have an impact. So I think I'll stop there. Uh, I first just want to lodge a complaint. Emma took all the jokes out of my intro, and uh, <laughs> we'll talk about that later. Um, I'm going to come at this from a different direction, mostly because I don't actually remember what the phrasing of the original question was at this point. <laughs> but um, so I did a master's and started a PhD that I didn't finish. Um, War on the Rocks takes up a lot of time. And um, I do think that the academic training I did have made me a different kind of editor. One thing that I think academic training does very well is teach you how to ask the right questions and find the right questions and then break that down into its components in a sort of very logical, useful way that doesn't come natural to many policy people that don't have that training. Um, but one thing I, I'm going to focus on the things that it doesn't teach you to do well. Um, you know, a lot of young people come to this town thinking they're going to be the next Henry Kissinger. But what made Henry Kissinger great wasn't because he was an excellent academic. It, what made Henry Kissinger great was because he understood three things. He understood national politics, uh, bureaucratic politics, and political communication. And those are all things that PhD training generally doesn't teach you. And um, Though that's, I think, what makes these really successful policy academics that go into policy making very successful. And uh, just to sort of have a different angle on it. it and uh, it teaches you more about the art of the possible and how to navigate the processes that actually end up resulting in, in actual policy. Um, so I'll just leave it at that. Okay. 
Thank you all. Um, so let, let's bring this back, I guess, to the, the big question, which is the, the Trump administration. And I, I think, Mira, you really put it very well when you pointed out that these sort of first 100 days or even the first year is really the time that you can influence a new administration. Um, and so um, I'd like to start with you, Matt, because you actually alluded to this article that you just had published in Foreign Affairs in which you actually argue that you don't think the Trump administration is particularly different from other administrations. You think he's doing a better job than a lot of people give him credit for. Um, would you like to comment? Uh, well, well, sure. Let's expand <laughs> a little on your So, on your so I had an article comments. that came out um, yesterday in, in the new uh, May-June issue of Foreign Affairs. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the, almost all, in fact, of the uh, media coverage of Trump's foreign policy so far has been negative. Um, but uh, there's some things that are going right as well. And so I think a lot of this criticism uh, goes too far and doesn't give credit where credit is due. Uh, and so the article kind of makes three big points. One, uh, that... Uh, one standard by which to judge a, a president's foreign policy is by the standard set by his predecessor. And, you know, we could probably debate this all, all night, but I would argue that Obama was a pretty bad foreign policy president. Uh, the world's worse off today than it was in January 2009 uh, in Asia, Middle East, uh, Europe, uh, you know, Russia invading another country in, in uh, Europe, China taking contested territory from U.S. treaty allies, a terrorist state in existence in the Middle East. Uh, and so... Uh, I think a pretty low bar has been set, and so that creates some room for improvement for Trump. And I think we've already seen that with him enforcing the red line in Syria that Obama was unwilling uh, to enforce. Uh, second, you know, it's very early, so it's too soon to pass definitive judgment. Um, uh, we don't exactly know what all the policies are going to be. A lot of these reviews are still taking place, but we do know what the uh, appointments are going to be, at least at, at the cabinet level. Mattis, McMaster, uh, I think everybody agrees are excellent choices. Uh, even if you look at the sub-cabinet level, people like Brian Hook at Policy Planning at State, John Huntsman, Ambassador to Russia, you know, qualified people who would likely work in, in any Republican administration. Uh, so he's put a, a good team in place. Uh, and then third, there have been a lot of controversies uh, over the Trump uh, policy. But a lot of these controversies are things that are you know, actually consistent with decades of U.S. foreign policy. It's just somehow scarier to people when Trump says it. You know, when, when Hillary Clinton says, uh, we'll be stronger than everybody else with way more nuclear weapons than are needed many times over, nobody bats an eye. When Trump says we're going to have nuclear weapons that are top of the pack, uh, it's suddenly a, a scandal. Um, and then uh, final point is that some of the places where he sees need, need for change, I, I think he's right to see a need for change. Uh, so I don't focus on, on areas of international trade, but my friends who do say that NAFTA does need to be updated. It's a 25-year-old agreement. It doesn't have protections for internet commerce and those kind of things. So saying that we're going to take another look at some of these trade agreements uh, actually makes uh, sense. So um, what I tried to do in the piece, I guess, is, you know, and I point out that there have been mistakes. I think the travel ban was a mistake. Um, but but uh, what I try to do in the piece is provide a more balanced uh, perspective than I think what we're getting from many. Thank you. And I'm sorry for putting you on the spot no with problem. that. But I think it's, it's interesting because here, you know, we're talking about what can academics bring to the policy debate? Well, actually, there are substantial differences of opinion even within this community. So let, let me just more broadly ask the panel, you know, can international relations scholars be of help to Trump in looking for these big ideas that will motivate his administration's foreign policy? So I'm going to take the advantage to uh, follow on the uh, third point Matt said. I learned a long time ago not to disagree with Matt, um, but to build on his argument. And uh, in this case, I think it's actually a really, it's, it's a wonderful challenge um, from an intellectual standpoint. I'm not going to comment on uh, from a political standpoint, 
Um, I think um, the international relations profession and the academy generally in political science is, is I, particularly in the United States, I think has been for a very long time obsessed with the word and the concept of stability and fears volatility more than anything else. And I think the, um, one of the sort of beautiful things intellectually of the new administration like this that is at least rhetorically willing to break some China, um, rhetorically, literally. Maybe also literally, yeah. <laughs> uh, is that um, it, it actually put, uh, puts an enormous challenge in front of us. And I think the challenge is if you took the word stability out of your lexicon and asked yourself, what is it that we really want in the world as compared to the maintenance of existing institutions or the reinforcement of existing trade agreements and uh, other sorts of alliances, and you just started from scratch with a blank sheet of paper, um, you'd probably find yourself uh, with some counterintuitive arguments, and this is something I think Matt's been very good at in his career, um, that uh, may not be right in all their particulars, but are valuable to people who are not beholden to the concept of stability. And I think that's a wonderful opportunity for academics to do some of that background work, because it's not so easy. Um, uh, and it requires an independent uh, platform on which you can um, speak without being attacked before you've gotten a chance to finish what it is you want to say. And that's something that the Academy uh, offers us, and at least when we take advantage of it. So I think it's a wonderful chance. So uh, I, I perhaps have not learned the same lesson as Steve, not to disagree with Matt. So I'm going to go ahead and disagree with Matt a little bit on this one. Well, he was um, my dissertation advisor, so he's being <laughs> polite, I think. So. Uh, I, I would sort of uh, take the question back to my first answer uh, to the question on the panel today, uh, which is to think about the broad policymaking community that academics can normally have some influence over in the ways that they interact with and use that as a way to hold up why academics and many other experts are now very nervous about what the Trump administration seems to offer in the policy realm, and in the foreign policy realm in particular. Obviously, there is the substance of Trump's uh, foreign policy views as it appeared to be, at least on the campaign trail and in the first several months of office. And Matt may absolutely be right that those views will moderate as time goes on uh, and he sort of gets the swing of things uh, and the sort of pressures of the job and of the international system exert themselves on him. But there are also some fundamental questions of policy process uh, that I think have been deeply unnerving to experts in this community uh, when they think about how to try to exert some influence um, and contribute ideas to this administration. Uh, and by that, I mean things like the fact that there have been very few uh, senior personnel appointments made, uh, the fact that there were some initial instincts to try to uh, circumvent and subvert uh, the NSC structure uh, by way of policymaking, the fact that there have been substantial diversions of large chunks of the foreign policy portfolio into the hands of family members and out of the hands of the traditional experts who we would expect to be managing them. And then the fact that there t tends to be uh, sort of systematic contradictions in foreign policy statement making, even amongst top cabinet officials. This can lead to the strong sentiment in the expert community that not only is it harder for outside voices to find points of entree in which to try to influence the administration, but indeed that the inside voices are not themselves speaking with one voice, and that it's not actually clear who indeed speaks for the president. Um, so this can feel like a very difficult environment 
environment in which to try to be useful as an expert um, and to try to figure out how you could possibly communicate your ideas or who you should be trying to communicate them to if you want to make that effort. Indeed, whether giving congressional testimony will have any relationship to what goes on in the administration whatsoever. Um, so the normal channels that we think of as foreign policy scholars uh, seem to be much more tenuous, if not closed off. And I think this can pose some real challenges to the way we think about trying to do work as experts who still want to make a difference um, and have our ideas be meaningful in this environment. And there are a few different ways we can think about trying to do that. Uh, one is to use our expertise to criticize, to hold up examples of places where we think something is not going well uh, that's fundamentally problematic for US foreign policy interests. Um, and there's certainly value in doing so. Another way is to use expertise uh, simply to analyze and to explain why a policy process or a policy itself uh, may be headed in a direction that we find problematic or at least different uh, in a way uh, that we think needs to be called attention to. So here I would point to the fact that I think there's been a lot of really great and innovative work done in the last couple of months uh, by folks who are focused on the foreign policy process, who study bureaucracy and the way that the government normally functions. Uh, I'll point to a colleague of mine at CNES, a woman named Lauren Shulman. And I'll also point to the publication Lawfare that's been doing absolutely terrific work in the national security law space since this administration took office. And then I also, as Steve mentioned, think that this administration presents a really very unique opportunity uh, for academics and those with scholarly training to pull back and ask big questions about the moment at which we are standing in our country's national political history um, and in the history of international politics. I think there's no question that Trump's iconoclastic views, uh, whether or not they become moderated over time, have raised a number of really first order international political questions. And those questions will not die down, uh, even if the president's views themselves do moderate. Whether it's the question of whether or not the so-called international order is useful in the 21st century, or what value NATO and other US alliances have, these are big questions that academics are best prepared to wrestle with. Um, so I would suggest that that's another way that academics can try to find themselves useful in this context. Yeah, so it seems like this, this idea of, of big questions or big grand strategy questions that don't often get asked is something that we can bring into this debate. But let me, let me ask you a slightly different question, which is, is there a specific area that you think that you can offer advice to Trump that academic, political science, literature, theory, work offers specific advice that would be useful for President Trump? Or perhaps put it another way, if you could give him one piece of advice, what would it be? I mean, I think that's the wrong question. I don't think you can give Trump any sort of nuanced, complexity, theory-based anything. The question is, is whether you can give the advice to the people that work for him that, you know, Matt pointed out some of the more talented people. He didn't name some of the less talented people that also have profound influence. But uh, just like he also didn't point out that, you know, Russia also invaded another country during the Bush administration called Georgia. And, but we won't get into all that. But the... Um, um, so the question will be, it will, it will depend, there will be two sides to this. One is, will a disciplined national security decision-making process actually be put into place? And that is a really important question if you are, if you think that people with scholarly training should have input, input into the national security decision-making cycle, or is it going to be the president talking with his daughter at a country club about what to do in Name Your Country? Uh, because that's, that's gonna be the, what, what makes that happen. Uh, but there are a lot of places, there are a lot of decisions that get made that don't bubble up to the presidential level in any administration, and that will certainly be the case in this one as well. And so I think that that's the most dependable area where, where academics, people with academic training will be able to have input 
into the process. So, you know, there's a lot of security force assistance stuff that I'm sure is not going to bubble up to the White House, the National Security Council. It didn't in the Obama administration. It probably won't here. There are lots of other areas, um, you know, force design, lots of different things. So I think that I'm actually pretty optimistic that academics will be heard, at least, in those areas. Uh, on the big sort of decisions, it'll depend if there's a process that's actually put into place, if General McMaster can make that happen, if the president is willing to abide by it, because at the end of the day, that's his decision and his prerogative. Um, I was in Delhi and Islamabad in December, soon after the election, and of course we were there to talk about you know, nuclear weapons, insurgency, stability, and the only thing people wanted to talk about was uh, what the hell is going to happen with U.S. foreign policy in the next four years. Uh, and so we had to sort of like think about this. We had to like sort of come up with a kind of a quick pat answer. And, and basically, you know, at least when it came to South Asia, we were thinking to ourselves, you know, probably not a whole lot of different stuff, right? There's a, probably a lot of continuity that's going to happen. And that's because, for better or worse, the blob in D.C. Uh, runs things. And that can be a good thing. That can be a bad thing, depending on sort of what side uh, of the aisle you sit on that. Uh, but I thought for, for, for us to communicate to them that there would be probably you could expect some continuity on a lot of important stuff, mainly because it doesn't rise to the level of uh, high order stuff that would be challenged by a, a political campaign or electoral campaign. But that does mean then that you have a lot of continuity, uh, I think, in a lot of these ideas that are ripe for disruption, as, as Emma was suggesting. So I still think there are a lot of sacred cows and shibboleths. Uh, that existed prior to this administration and sort of continue into now uh, that we could take close close aim at um, as as academics or scholars or even policy analysts, right? So like the, the terms that get sort of bandied about in a lot of current policy decisions are about we should apply pressure to this for X to X state or this country. But we don't really think about sort of, you know, how do we do that? What are the means for it? Uh, what are the potential responses and, and sort of counter moves by X state? Because the, the adversary uh, always gets a vote in, in, these, in these processes. And I think that we can start to game some of this stuff out that is, is maybe more difficult uh, in, in the policy uh, community. Uh, there's an adherence, I think Emma wants probably to, to wade into this territory at some point about sort of the issue of credibility and reputation and how important it is to, uh, uh, to, to burnish our reputation for action. But how about the reputation for efficacy of, of, of such actions, right? I mean, if we can't demonstrate competence then how do, we, how do we signal credibility? That'll be a, a question that I think can come up. And, and it's one that academics are trained to, sort of to, to think about and answer. If I could just interject, we just had one example of not knowing where our own ships were in an attempt to demonstrate resolve and pressure. But, yeah. I'm not pointing fingers here or there. I'm just, I'm just trying to like raise theoretical sort of concepts. But, uh, and another one that sort of has come up sort of in, in the work I've been doing lately is uh, bargaining from a position of strength. Well, what does that mean? How do you get to a position of strength? Can you always get to a position of strength? And, and by the way, if you're trying to bargain from a position of strength, isn't your adversary also trying to do, do it as well? So does that lock you in sort of this infinite regress of everyone's trying to get the upper hand? It's like the, you know, the two, the two per people trying to like play a thumb war and they're just like sort of jostling with each other. And like, so I think that we can start to challenge some of these ideas with real research. And I, I give an example of it because it happened last week. I was before I was going into doing some briefings at the State Department. Uh, I'd say for academics, you should, when you publish your stuff in, in uh, academic journals, publish the, uh, the ungated version on your websites because that, to, ha to have access to that for the general policy community is, is invaluable. Uh, so I read an ungated version of a recent article that was about security force assistance and when it works and when it doesn't, when it generates uh, military effectiveness in the target state and when it doesn't. And it was incredibly valuable because it turns out 
it requires uh, the provider of that security force assistance to do some really unorthodox and difficult things, which is to signal some sort of credible threat of exit or a major ultimatum that then induces the target state to actually make the, the necessary changes in professionalization of their military. This is an article by Steve Biddle, Julia McDonald, and uh, Ryan, I can't remember Ryan's last name, apologize. Uh, but it, it's a really invaluable article, because this is exactly the problem we're dealing with when it comes to Afghanistan. How do we actually build a capable uh, Afghan security force that uh, takes seriously the, the demands for uh, military effectiveness and requires professionalization to do it. And um, I, I think sort of bringing these discussions to light, um, challenging some of these conventional wisdom, and this article was like in the works for years. It wasn't just that it so happened to come out during this administration that it sort of suddenly has an impact. So uh, I think working on the same problem sets, but policy relevant questions, and there'll be opportunities for these to address policy, contemporary policy problems when, when those problems arise. Well, your question was about the, the specific uh, subjects on, on which we might be able to influence Trump's policy. And you know, I think if you just pay attention in the paper, you can see that there are all these ongoing reviews going on. Uh, so just in the areas that I focus on, there's a, a nuclear posture review process has just been launched. Um, Secretary Tillerson said, I think, just yesterday that, that for now we're going to abide by the Iran nuclear deal, but he's going to review whether uh, continuing to relieve these sanctions on Iran is in the U.S. national interest. Uh, North Korea, there's a policy review underway. Uh, so these are big, big questions. Should we keep the Iran nuclear deal? What should our approach be with North Korea? What is the role of nuclear weapons in U.S. defense policy? Uh, you know, a year ago, these were closed questions. The Obama administration had come to their conclusions for the most part, and, uh, and those were closed issues. Uh, now they're wide open. So again, going back to one of these recurring themes, I think this is uh, the, the time in the kind of policy process when outside voices can really have an influence. Thank you. Um, let's take a couple of audience questions before we uh, wrap this up. And if you could please wait for the microphone and state your name and affiliation. Um, and let's start over here. John Glazer, Cato Institute. Um, a friend of mine with many years of uh, think tank experience once told me with great certitude something very depressing, which is that um, academics can't really influence policy because um, policymakers only care about scholarship to the extent that scholarship can put a scholarly veneer on pre-existing policy preferences. I'm wondering if anyone on the panel has uh, personal experience or anecdote or examples which counter that. Um, have you? been able to persuade a policymaker that believed one thing of something else because the scholarship sh says something else. Just one quick, if there's a great blog that, um, Brookings blog that Jeremy Shapiro wrote a few years ago, and it's, it's I forget the title of it, you could find it, it's basically how, pol how policymakers really engage with think tankers. And it's sort of along those lines, it also has the benefit of being very funny. I mean. I think if you're planning on changing someone's mind from A to B on an issue on the basis of your in-depth case study research, I think you're setting too high of a standard. I think oftentimes the best that academics can do, the best that experts can do, is provide a sharper lens through which to view a problem. Uh, and whether or not that ends up pushing the final decision where you'd like to see it, I think sometimes you're, you're just getting, setting yourself up for disappointment if that's your standard for if you've been successful or not. 
Well, I think there are also opportunities where um, the goals are defined at a level of abstraction um, such that the real debate is not over whether the goal ought to be achieved, but how to achieve the goal. And that's a place where a great deal of um, input can come. So I'll just, I'll just switch gears for a moment and put on the table the obvious one. Um, the president, as far as I can tell, is going to be evaluated on whether or not he is able to achieve a higher rate of economic growth in this country over the next three and a half years. Nobody that I know of would like to change his mind to say, no, actually, what we really need is a lower rate of economic growth. <laughs> but I think there is a great deal of very constructive and productive debate over exactly what it will take to boost growth rates to some reasonable level that are sustainable. And I see that door right now as being wide open, actually, for influence. Um, maybe the, better than influence would be for constructive and counterintuitive ideas. So at that level of abstraction, I think there's plenty of openness. Well, just on this point, I, th I think you're right that often policymakers uh, kind of have their mind made up. But if you think about the way the policy process plays out, then I think it uh, leads you to a more optimistic uh, solution. Because often the biggest fights uh, in the process aren't you know, across party lines. They're within administrations, within bureaucracies. You know, nuclear weapons, something that I uh, focus a lot of time on. You know, State Department, for the most part, would prefer that we have fewer nuclear weapons because then they can go abroad and say we're doing so much to abide by Article 6. You know, the Defense Department needs to provide deterrence and defense. In general, they'd prefer to have more. Uh, and so, you know, then there's an interagency process. People from defense, state, other agencies come together. There are policy papers circulated, sometimes uh, papers from the outside. And so I think that's where outside scholars can have, uh, have an influence. You can, uh, you know, be part of that uh, policy process. So, again, it's not going to be that your papers plop down on the table and the president says, okay, you know, this is what the professor says. Uh, but, you know, it... it is part of the part of the discussion, uh, part of the the weight of the evidence that's on one side of the argument versus the other, uh, when the deputies or the principals or whoever it is uh, makes the the final decision. Okay. Yeah. So up here, Reed. Uh, thank you. This is most interesting. Um, Reed Smith with the uh, Charles Koch Institute. Um, so working at a. Uh, at a funder that plays in the uh, security studies field, I'm curious to hear the uh, panel's thoughts about some of the big questions uh, that the Trump era has ushered in. Uh, whither NATO? Uh, what about the liberal international order? Does Pax Americana remain on the table? Um, whether we're talking in the academy or the public policy sector, uh, presuming we survive the next four or eight years, um, are these questions that get put back in the bottle, or have we experienced a dialectical shift? Good question. I think this is a great question. Um, and this is sort of what I was getting at when I suggested that this is a fundamentally appropriate um, and, and very intriguing time uh, for scholars to step back and ask first order questions. I think regardless of whether or not this president's views become more mainstream over a period of a few weeks or months, the questions that have been raised by the campaign in the first few months of this presidency will absolutely not be put back in the bottle. Um, and that there is no question that the United States is going to be viewed differently in the world four years from now than it was before this election and, and this presidency. And there may be all sorts of different reasons why that's the case. 
Um, but while this president's views, uh, as articulated at least initially, have been extraordinarily uh, iconoclastic, I think he has, by instinct, arrived at a number of very important questions that are very much worthy of scholarly examination, namely uh, this question of whether the so-called liberal international order, which we so often refer to in Washington and really has very little meaning outside of the Beltway, is a thing. Um, and, and whether it's important in the 21st century. And of course, the question can't be asked or answered really on this stage. Um, but that is a charge for an entire generation of scholarship, certainly for the next four years, to ask questions about how the system that the United States put in place uh, to sustain and sustain its own con uh, hegemony and contribute to the world uh, continues to be relevant in the 21st century. What parts of it still really matter? What parts of it need to be renovated? What parts of it have frankly been overtaken by geopolitical trends uh, and need to be rethought. Um, so I think that's an extraordinary charge for all of those who traffic in the world of, uh, all of those of us who traffic in the world of, of big ideas to take on over the course of this presidency. I think uh, while the questions were worth raising, and I think academics have been raising them for a number of years, in fact, I think it's much more diverse sort of array of uh, question raised in academia. Uh, I think it's hard, I, I just think for, for two reasons. It, if an administration is committed to an idea where you cannot appear to lose ground in any space, I think it makes it hard to then sort of question these sort of fund bundle ideas about Pax Americana. Uh, and, and I'm saying even just the appearance of losing ground, right? So if there, and if there's not sort of a way to sort of strategically prioritize and you have to uh, win in every, every domain uh, and be better in every domain than you were before, then I think you're just gonna not be able to actually prioritize the most important things. And similarly, I mean, there's an argument in, in international relations called rational appeasement. I think things like that, which are sort of logical, I mean, it's fundamentally the argument is made about sort of what we did in World War II uh, for strategic prioritization. Uh, if those are, uh, if those ideas are anathema, then I think it's hard to then really sort of get these questions of wither Pax Americana. Okay, I think we have time for one more question. Yeah, here, uh, the fourth row up. John Lipman, a question about style. You're attempting to change minds at various levels of the government. How much thinking have you done about the, the media that you are presenting, uh, in which you're presenting? Uh, video, no video, graphs, no graphs, uh, short, long. And I know a certain amount of it is you tailor it for the audience, but what experiences have you had in, in, in successfully accomplishing that? I've thought a little bit about this. Um, <laughs> I think the actual choice between different mediums, whether you choose a video or an infographic or the written word, is less important in how good you are at those things. Because we all, you know, people say they're visual learners or they're auditory, and I, don't, I actually, and there's actually not a lot of science that supports that, but um, what people respond to is if you're engaging or not. And I think one of the biggest um, misfortunes of our field is we always talk to each other, and so we assume it's okay to talk in this really jargony, wonky way, when actually we don't even like reading things in that way. Um, you know, so telling stories, bringing yourself into things, uh, you know, being an engaging writer or an engaging designer or an engaging videographer, I think it's, what's important is, is just being good at those things and, and speaking in a way that people actually 
like to read or listen to or watch, I think what a lot of people don't understand is uh, how lazy consumers of information are be, and, and how over flooded, how flooded they are with stuff every day. And you're, if you write an article, you're competing with so much. And so how do you get the attention of people and get them to read your article and then think about it and then share it and then maybe even act on it if they're a policymaker? And I don't think um, producers of content think enough about that. Uh, especially people that have academic training, because that's another thing that academic training actually doesn't teach you how to do very well. Well, uh, thank you all. I think we will wrap it up there. I know everybody's probably eager to get to happy hour. Um, so please join us outside in the Winter Garden to continue this conversation over some drinks. Um, and please join me in giving our panelists a round of applause.